A spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? On Tuesday night, US Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi arrived in Taiwan, the first time such a senior US official had visited the island in 25 years, making headlines across the world. One flight tracker website had to limit access because so many people were trying to follow the plane. The Chinese government is furious, regarding the visit as America showing support for Taiwanese independence, even though the White House made it relatively clear that Pelosi did not have their blessing. This week, the People's Liberation Army have flown jets near the Taiwan Strait, shot missiles over the island of Taiwan that even reached the exclusive economic zone of Japan. So how far will Beijing go? And what have the Taiwanese made of all this? In this episode, I'm joined by Brian Hugh from Taipei. He's the editor of the Taiwan-based youth magazine New Bloom, and we'll be discussing what the visit and China's response mean for Taiwan. Now, Brian, just to start us off, some in the West have said that Pelosi's visit is extremely dangerous and provocative, while others have pointed out that actually it's a support for Taiwanese democracy. Can you tell us what your analysis of how advisable this trip is? So I think the question then is, was it mostly symbolic or is there something that Taiwan gets out of it? Because although the interest of the trip was phrased as this is for the sake of Taiwan, it might be more about American domestic politics, for example, midterms later this year. Pelosi might be hoping to show that Democrats are also strong on China and showing this by supporting Taiwan, by going to Taiwan. It might also be a legacy move. But then what does Taiwan gain out of it, actually? There's already been visits, diplomatic visits that are high level. I mean, Pelosi is obviously a rank above because she's next in succession to the presidents after the vice presidency. And so um, that is that is a sign of support. But what does someone actually get of it? I think that, that's a question. Yeah, I mean, that was the question that a journalist from Bloomberg asked her on Wednesday's press conference. And I think that she couldn't actually really answer. She didn't really answer the question. I mean, so what's symbolic then? I mean, it, it does feel like it's a bit of a swan song for a politician who's nearing the end of her political career. Mm, that's right. Um, I mean, there is speculation that she is going to be retiring soon. And so this might be one of the last things she does. And so it could be a legacy move. I mean, capping off a career as a liberal that is very critical of China. And she brought this up multiple times during her trip, for example, talking about uh, Tiananmen Square and her, her many years, many decades of advocacy on these issues. Meeting with Kai Si as well, for example, that's uh, something that she did because he lives in Taipei and is one of the student leaders of the Tiananmen Square movement uh, 30 years ago. And so I think it, it points us continuity in her career. And so it might be to bolster her foreign policy credentials as she nears retirement. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that? Tell us more about her meeting with Wuokaisi and the other democracy activists she saw. So apart from Wuokaisi, who I think is symbolic because he is a Tiananmen Square survivor, one of the student leaders, and is also Uyghur. She also met with Lan Wenqi, who is the last of the Causeway Bay booksellers to remain free. He's a Hong Konger. They sold books that are critical of the Chinese government, tabloid books about uh, Xi Jinping and other Chinese political leaders. And they mostly disappeared while traveling in China or in Hong Kong or elsewhere in Southeast Asia, in Thailand particularly. And so that was another case that became really well known in the years before the 2019 protests. Now, with deterioration of political freedoms in Hong Kong, there could be Hong Kongers kidnapped and then reappearing in China to confess to political crimes. And the last person she met as part of that meeting was Li Mingzhou, who was a Taiwanese NGO worker. 
worked on Covenant Swats and other organizations monitoring cross-strait agreements. He was arrested on the charges of seeking to subvert state power, communicating ideas about Taiwan's democratization and history to friends in, in China, and he disappeared after crossing into China. And so he was detained for five years and was only recently released. His disappearance raised the issue of Taiwanese are detained in China on political charges currently. There are a few. Actually, there most recently, yesterday night, there was reports that another Taiwanese person, 32 years old, also seems to be arrested on charges of supporting Taiwanese independence in China. So this could also be happening again. So I think it was symbolic in that sense, showing Pelosi's support for activists, touching upon Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, but also the history of Chinese democracy with Tiananmen Square. The holy trio that angers the People's Republic of China <laughs> in Beijing. <laughs> what, what, what do you make of President Tsai Ing-wen's way she dealt with this trip? Because, I mean, there were people who said that possibly this wouldn't be treated as a state visit. It would be quite low-key. At the same time, President Tsai met her. Pelosi spoke to the Taiwanese legislature. President Tsai also gave her an award, the Order of Propitious Clouds. So it wasn't really low-key. Do you think President Tsai had a message or, or are we, is there more nuance to her position there? So I think actually uh, part of it, the awkwardness is that now the red carpet has to be rolled out for Pelosi. It was already discussed really internationally and so forth. And Pelosi also stayed for around 20 hours. Uh, it was debated, for example, what form the trip would take. For example, Newt Gingrich, the last House Speaker to visit Taiwan, which occurred in 1997, he only stayed for three hours. Pelosi stayed for 20 hours. She stayed overnight. She did not just meet with the president and leave. She also spoke to the legislature. She met with TSMC Chair Mark Liu. She visited the Jingmei Human Rights Memorial Park to meet with these uh, three actors that we just discussed. And so this was quite high profile. And, and so it's possible that Taiwan might have preferred for it to be a much lower profile, but it just happened to take place this way. I mean, Taipei 101 even lit up for her. But I think the other thing is that particularly when other American politicians visited Taiwan, the red carpet was rolled up for them in such a way that if you have someone of Pelosi's stature now visiting Taiwan, you have to do something that's more grand. Otherwise, it looks bad. Mm. So, for example, if you lit up Taipei 101 for Mike Pompeo, you better do the same for Pelosi, which is what happened. And so I think Taiwan also pushed itself into this position, maybe, by being too high profile about some visits from American politicians, even ones that did not actually represent the U.S. government. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was watching some Taiwanese talk shows on YouTube this week, and I thought it was interesting. One thing that came up was this discussion about whether or not the Taiwanese government actually invited her. And in my understanding, they actually haven't answered that question. Is that right? They've stayed very stum on <laughs> that question of whether or not they actually invited her. Yeah, exactly. And so there's a report in the China Times, which is it's a bit suspect because the China Times has been reported on as accepting Chinese money funding, that is, and also saying its editorial direction from China's Taiwan Affairs Office. It's been reported on by the Financial Times and also the Apple Daily. But they claim to have a leak that showed that Taiwan had actually tried to disinvite Pelosi, but that she was insistent on coming. And so therefore, this visit still had to take place. And so that, that is question, but I mean, that does raise questions about what does Taiwan get out of this? And would Taiwan have the ability to say no to such a visit? And are American politicians doing political grandstanding using Taiwan without necessarily thinking about the potential consequences? And we're seeing that now, perhaps, with the live fire exercises. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let, let's talk about that now, because what is it like in Taipei? We're, we're recording this on Thursday, 4th of August, which is the day after Pelosi has left, which is the day that military drills were planned to have started. And they have started now, haven't they? So what is the atmosphere like on the island today? Mm. So I think what's quite interesting is that there was not a lot of strong reactions beforehand to Pelosi's visit. There was a lot of discussion in international media for weeks on end. 
but I don't think the public really noticed until 48 hours before Pelosi arrived. There was even a joke on the internet that people thought the name Pelosi was the name of a typhoon that was going to hit Taiwan or something like that. That's a weather phenomenon. But then it happened. I mean, she was welcomed by quite a lot of people. There were 200 people at the uh, airport where she landed. Uh, someone photoshopped her face onto a map of the typhoon going over uh, Taiwan. No, that's right. Yeah, that was quite funny. That was quite funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so people were there at the airport and at the hotel where she stayed. Uh, there, there were some counter protesters as well. But then, then with regards to the missile, the fired and the live fire drills and so forth, I think it's a little too soon to see what the reaction is. It's day one. It's going to take some time for this news to circulate, for images and video of this missiles being fired and, and drilling to circulate on social media, for example, or in television or to appear in newspapers. But we'll see what the reaction is in the coming days. But I don't think people are as panicked in the past weeks as, as much of the international would expect because of the fact that there's been so much in terms of Chinese military drilling or activity directed at Taiwan for decades. So people are quite used to it. <laughs> I thought it was funny what you tweeted about today, that possibly some tourists have gone to Xiaoliuqiu just to see the military planes <laughs> and the drills happening off the coast of Taiwan. That's right. That'd be definitely interesting to see. I mean, some people might have gone there for that. I mean, tourism is down for that, but uh, it should be visible there. And so it's quite interesting. I mean, I wonder then if it ends up some videos of it or, or footage and circulating. I mean, I think China intends for it to be visible in the sense to perhaps uh, serve as a form of psychological warfare to be intimidating. But it's possible people just make fun of it or just, you know, take pictures and find it funny and, and that kind of thing instead. I also do know that fishing vessels were advised not to go into those areas. And so I do wonder if anyone encounters a, a Chinese boat on the sea and, and what happens then. Mm, well, well that, that's the danger of escalation, isn't it? And, and so let's talk about the Taiwanese government's response, because am I right in thinking that the Taiwanese government has warned fishermen to be careful in the areas that the People's Republic of China have announced? Those are the areas you're going to do military drills in. Commercial flights are fewer in number over the weekend. We've heard from South Korea that they're going to be cancelling some flights going into Taiwan. So that's a very real impact, right? Military impact aside, it's the impact on civilian life, on the economy that we're talking about, we're going to see most quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that impact will be uh, seen as well. The dangers of escalation are that some incident happens. You know, for example, there's some unfortunate boat that got caught in the midst of these live fire drills. And that provokes outrage from whichever country that boat is flagged to or what sailors that, that boat has, uh, has sailors from. And that's the real threat of this, I think. This even occurs, this is a threat even just with China's air incursions, such as Taiwan's air defense identification zone, because of the fact that what if someone pulls the trigger with one of these uh, fighter jets that are intercepting each other and that kind of thing. And so I think that that's the real risk. And so I think that's why these uh, live fire exercises, even if it does end up not resolving into anything or is just primarily for show, whenever this kind of thing takes place, there is a certain risk that is present. And that's the risk of escalation. Mm. And, and obviously, preventing that escalation requires good, accurate information. But one of the reasons I found your Twitter so helpful during this very fast-moving crisis is the fact-checking that you do of Taiwanese media. Because you've pointed out that actually, sometimes Taiwanese media just recycle what they see from international media, which then recycles from Taiwanese media. Can you tell us about this weird cycle that's happened over the last few weeks? Absolutely. And so there's a very strange dynamic there where I think Taiwanese media often assume that international media just inherently knows more. I think it's very post-colonial in that respect, actually. And that's not always the case. I mean, the funny thing is that international media is oftentimes operating on Chinese language news sources. But then the two sides are actually somewhat bad at fact-checking each other either. And so things that I think are pretty obviously should be fact-checked are not done by both sides. And it creates this bad cycle in which they're amplifying sometimes disinformation, but also primarily misinformation. 
And then I think particularly there's a lot of attention to what goes on on Twitter. And so Twitter, actually, though, it's social media commentary. And even on Twitter with, for example, open source intelligence, you have a lot of people that are not too credible, actually trying to edge in and claim they're credible sometimes. This can be reported on by Taiwanese media as, as what international media is saying and just really just source from social media. And so I think poor fact-checking practices from Taiwanese media are part of it, but then this somehow ends up in English language media too, particularly because there are sources that are then just translating directly from Taiwanese media, assuming Taiwan knows more, but then Taiwan got it from social media somewhere on the internet, on Twitter or wherever. And then this this is quite dangerous. And I think accurate information is, is quite necessary. And I think there are orgs in Taiwan that work on fact-checking, disinformation and misinformation, but a lot of times they're very focused on domestic disinformation that is dealing with kind of Taiwanese politics that happens internally in Taiwan and not things that occur in English. I don't think they're paying attention to information about Taiwan in English that's circulating online. I think that's a danger. I think that's something that needs to be, there must be more attention to. Can you give an example of where that kind of misinformation spread, not helped by social media, has happened? An example where people got things wrong? Mm-hmm. So, for example, there was one case which is quite bad. I think it was probably a few years ago. And it was a claim that, well, for example, you know, China is building its overseas military base in Djibouti. And it was a claim that in one of Taiwan's allies there, Taiwan would construct its own military base next to it. And this is from a Taiwanese, an English language Taiwanese website, media website that has very powerful fact-checking practices. And they source this from a French website. A French website, I looked at the website, and the French website had completely broken sections. Nobody knew it was from. It uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. So where are they getting this from? Then? They reported on something that could create an international incident. And then the Ministry of Foreign Affairs had to get involved and make a disinitiation. It's not the first time this media outlet has done things like this, too. I'm not going to name that outlet. But this is one example of where this creates a lot of dangers, and it really can heighten tensions. And that's the thing I'm really terrified of right now, just that poor faction practices from Taiwanese media, but also international media sometimes as well is going to lead to this kind of issue or this kind of incident because there's a lot of room for dangerous incidents to happen here. And things that occur so far from observers on the high seas are, are very hard to verify sometimes. And I think that's, that's a challenge. Mm. And let's talk about the People's Republic of China's response then. We've obviously already suggested that there are military drills happening, there are missile launches and there are jets flying very close to the strait. For the listener who is concerned that all of this might be a precursor to an invasion, an all-out invasion, what would you say to that interpretation of events? So I don't think it's possible at present because, for example, an invasion, China has technical limitations on conducting it. For example, lift capacity. Do you have enough boats to bring enough troops to Taiwan to conduct the long-term occupation? That's something that China does not have. That's why there's concern about, for example, the incorporation of civilian vessels into the military or paramilitary activity, because then that's one way to improve your lift capacity. But then we would see troops massing on the coast of Taiwan for a while, for like months, maybe, because of the fact that you can't get that much troops over to the coast so fast to go over. It's logistically very difficult. Uh, These things don't happen like that. It's not like a national disaster that suddenly a military invasion happens. You have to have preparedness for it. So that's why even though Taiwanese people are very chill right now, and some people compare it to the calm in Ukraine before the invasion, the situation is not the same because we're not seeing troops massing. What's more concerning is the possibility of limited Chinese military actions, such as conducting a blockade, which is China claims that they may do that, or Chinese nationalists on the internet, such as the former Global Times editor-in-chief claims that that's what is going on. That's a more of a real possibility, and that is a danger. Or, for example, attacking one of Taiwan's outlying islands, for example, Itu Aba. That's also something that's discussed periodically. But I think that, you know, we're, we're very far from a full-scale invasion, but the question then that's sometimes talked is, are we in the middle of a, a Taiwan Straits crisis or not? Yeah, I thought Thomas Friedman of the New York Times wrote a very interesting op-ed on this issue this week, where he said that the problem wasn't necessarily an invasion immediately, but more what message this sends to Beijing, i.e. it tells President Xi Jinping, 
strategic ambiguity is dead. If you want to make a move on Taiwan, you have to do it sooner rather than later. Strike the wire, the iron is hot because you've got limited time. Do you think that is the danger from this visit? It is definitely a danger. For example, I mean, I think it is true that it's possible Beijing will decide it's better to do it now rather than in the future when some Republican hawk is present again or something like that. That is also possible. Right. But then I think in terms of, for example, Friedman's claims, it's just a bit spurious. I mean, it's hard to speculate. I mean, there are also plenty of reasons as to why C would not move now. For example, wanting stability before the 20th National Congress. Mm. And for example, just the fact that there is the effect to China's economy from just the rolling lockdowns with COVID zero or just that the economy was slowing before the start of COVID, just the, the impact on Taiwan and China, which have deeply interlinked economies. I mean, just even if only Taiwan's economy would go into crisis, that would have global repercussions, similar to, or even on a much larger scale, because the economy is much larger than Ukraine's, much larger than the shocks that we saw after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I mean, does China really want that? Can they really deal with that at present? That's also a question. And then you think about, for example, China will hit at these select industries of Taiwan through trade bans, for example, of uh, grouper or citrus or pineapple. But then it's also dependent on supply chains on Taiwanese semiconductors, and it's, it's reliant on that. And you're not going to have semiconductors if you are conducting an invasion or you actually blow up the infrastructure or you end up wiping out the people that have the know-how in a costly invasion, a bloody invasion. Yeah, that's my read on the situation as well, because it does seem like President Xi wants to get the sweet spot before the Autumn National Party Congress, where he shows strength, he can show his party he's going to defend China and be a strong man, but at the same time without really going into the properly risky situation of an actual invasion, which might very well blow back in his face. What about cyber attacks as well? Because that's something that the Taipei government has said it has suffered from this week. That's right. And so there have been cyber attacks on websites, uh, if I recall correctly, the presidential office website, the portal, the official, the main portal for Taiwan, as well as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs website. And so those those had attacks, cyber attacks. But, uh, you know, DDoS attacks are not actually so technically difficult. More concerning is that there are displays in 7-Elevens, the ubiquitous convenience store in Taiwan that is basically present everywhere. They're like maybe on four on a block or something like that. All of their monitors were changed in the morning, uh, reportedly for some stores, but maybe even all stores briefly. There's access to the central system to say messages against Pelosi, calling her a warmonger. And in the uh, Taiwan Railway Station as well, in one in Kaohsiung, I believe, the monitor was also changed. But that is actually also not that technically complicated, actually. It could just be that the contractor that was handling the Mm. central system for 7-Eleven had poor cybersecurity practices. Often Taiwanese companies, even sections of government, have quite poor cybersecurity. I mean, hopefully it's a wake-up call. Probably it won't be. But then it might not even be a state actor that was behind it. Uh, But there is this concern about cyber attacks. I think um, it might not be from China, actually, though. What is concerned is if there is a cyber attack on, for example, Taiwan's power grid, because you also see these crazy incidents in recent years where the power grid for like a city shuts down or something because someone accidentally hits a switch. And you wonder, is it that easy to actually just shut down that much power for that many people just by accidentally hitting a switch or like their chair accidentally hit a, mm. a lever and then there's a power outage? I mean, the cyber attacks, you know, we know China has that capacity, but would they actually consider that doing that seriously? In the event of invasion, I think they would. Yeah, I guess I guess if, if it was them this week, that would just be a demonstration of what they could do more seriously. But you say that it might not even be them. I mean, who else, who else could it be? Yeah, so I mean, it might not actually be the Chinese government. It could be someone that has a technical capacity that is pro-China or very anti-Tsai or very anti-US and decide to carry this out. Um, for example, 7-Eleven, their central system for the displays is outsourced and that contractor might not have very high security practices. A lot of companies or even sections of government do not have very high digital security practices in Taiwan. And this could be a wake up call that probably won't be. But then it doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be anything as complex as a state actor. 
Mm. And Brian, I also want to talk to you about the Taiwanese attitude to the events of the last week, because I think it's a point that you make very eloquently through your social media and through your writing and interviews, which is that too so often when we discuss this in Western media, nobody's asking the Taiwanese people what they're making of all of this. You've already said that people didn't really look at the event; they weren't really looking forward to it necessarily before her visit. Mm. So, are they just basically tuning out this? These great power games that are being played with Taiwan as a pawn. I think people are used to it. I think that's a long-term condition of Taiwan. But I think that uh, particularly, there's not been a lot of discussion of what Taiwanese want in this. There's discussion from the U.S. and Taiwan of how the impact would be on the U.S. and Taiwan, or of a global war that might begin from this, without consideration that it would be first Taiwanese. Of all people that are in the line of fire, directly in the line of fire, and so what is then the threat assessment from Taiwanese? I think that's important to keep in mind. And then what is the fate of Taiwan? Because then just is talked about as though it were decided between the U.S. And, and China without consideration of what Taiwanese people think or feel. And so there's a lot of people terming this on the internet the Fourth Taiwan Straits Crisis. But do Taiwanese people actually think that a and b what is their preferred? Would they have liked to see a Pelosi visit or not? Are they afraid of these drilling or not? And I think that's the thing, and people are not actually asking for the present. And I think that is quite disturbing because it points to how in the future, if things become more intense, if we actually reach a point of very likely conflict, it will be the same way that actually Taiwanese won't be taken into consideration of the uh, this this of what happens、mm. or yeah, taken into account. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, are there polls in Taiwan that show whether or not Pelosi's visit was popular, or, or what people think the long-term interests of Taiwan should be between China and the U.S.? Because obviously, President Tsai Ing-wen's election, in some ways, is a way to show the popular opinion in Taiwan as being more pro-Western, pro-democracy than pro-PRC. But that's just one metric out of possibly many. Yeah, I think there has been some polling that indicates that Taiwanese will feel reassured of the U.S. support for Taiwan on the basis of Pelosi's visit, and so I think that's quite interesting because I think you know there was the obvious open disagreements between Pelosi and Biden, but I think that was not as noticed. By many members of the public in Taiwan, I think there's much more focus on Pelosi than that she came to begin with, and so I think that kind of overshadowed in some ways the conflict that took place weeks before with Biden. I think that's interesting too because there have been periods in which Biden misspoke by seeming to express commitment to defending Taiwan when there was actually no commitment from the U.S. But there also been times in which he suggested there was agreement between the U.S. and China when there is actually no agreement, agreement on the the issue of Taiwan that is. And so that is only noticed in terms of when Biden seems to indicate support for Taiwan in Taiwanese media. The parts where he seems to indicate agreement with China on Taiwan when there is none. That part is not reported on as much. Yeah, what do people think of Biden and his gaffes? Because, as you say, strategic ambiguity has been such a tenet of U.S.-China-Taiwan trio for the last few decades. <laughs> Him trying to—I don't know—just saying very explicitly that they would defend Taiwan. You know, that that does throw that into a lot of confusion. So, what do the Taiwanese people think of Biden as a president? So I think it's one of the ironies then that there might not be a lot of awareness of、uh, these gaps. Just he is seen as much more consistent and on point than I think he、okay. actually is. And I think that's also the the issue that previously with Trump, another president that often would say things that veered off script and were unpredictable. This was seen as some kind of grand master strategy when I think there was none. I think the simplest explanation is sometimes the best explanation there. But I think just there is this assumption of that the U.S. knows what's doing when perhaps it does not actually. I don't think it's as bad as some people claim that the U.S. just has no idea what's doing and things are completely out of control and just chaotic. But the truth is probably somewhere in between. And so I think that's something that 
many people have not actually noticed. Yeah, and, and Brian, very finally, um, I wondered, because you mentioned Hu Xijing, who is the former editor of the PRC paper, Global Times. Did you come across that manipulated wedding photo that people in mainland China made of Hu Xijing and Nancy Pelosi's wedding photo? Yeah, I love that, actually. That was hilarious. I mean, the things that people on the internet come up with, it's always really quite ludicrous. <laughs> I mean, that'd be, a, that'd be a great explanation if, you know, decades from now, somehow just the, the archive reminds some secret, you know, history like that. Yeah, absolutely. For listeners who don't know, basically, uh, internet users in China manipulated the two pictures, uh, younger versions of these two people into a very traditional communist style wedding photo. I guess the point is just just to be silly is, is I guess it was what we would call trolling but that's gone pretty viral and actually Brian I don't know if you saw one mm. German paper actually fact checked it to say it's not a real photo they didn't actually get married <laughs> <laughs> wow no, that's incredible yeah, yeah, yeah. I think even in times of chaos people well exactly in times of chaos people find humor and I think for the Taiwanese you guys are stuck in the middle absolutely absolutely I think so too people are still making jokes about it I mean yeah and people aren't panicking and stocking up supplies and running to the bunkers just yet I mean people are still joking about it and even even jokes that you know yeah you know what happens if china attacks well you know we'll just go with it i mean people have been like yeah well at least eat a good meal before that happens right like people are, are quite cavalier about it sometimes i think do you think there's a risk that they might be too complacent that's also a possibility i mean i think that because of the fact that taiwan has seen threats for so long then any real threats are not actually taken very seriously that is also a possibility but i think that there are times in which for example just taiwanese do become alarmed at the potential for deterioration of cross-street relations or military action or, or that kind of thing. And now it does not actually seem to be one of those times, at least just yet. I mean, it'll be seen if that changes in the next few days. But for now, I think that things seem quite okay. Brian Ho, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thanks for having me. And if you enjoy this podcast, we have a new Chinese Whispers newsletter coming soon. So if you want to sign up to that, which will just be an email version of everything you love about Chinese Whispers, the podcast, then you can go to spectator.co.uk forward slash whispers to sign up and it will be coming soon.